Hello, you're listening in with Lloyd Goslink. This podcast is brought to you by Lloyd Goslink, Rochelle and Townsend in Austin, Texas. Lloyd Goslink is a 30 plus attorney firm specializing in natural resources, energy, litigation, and employment law. My name is Angie Matz, and I am the firm's marketing coordinator. Our purpose with this podcast is to talk with some of our practice area experts about timely topics and trends in an informal setting while aiming to be a little bit fun and informative to listeners. Today, I'm here with Nathan Vassar and Lauren Thomas from our water practice group, and they are excited to share with you some major updates in the federal water issues landscape. Hello, everyone. This is Nathan Vassar and Lauren Thomas. We're excited to give some updates on a number of critical water and drinking water and wastewater related issues that really have been on the federal forefront in the last several months. And we know a lot of the clients and utilities we work with will be very interested in seeing this. You know, Lauren and I have given podcasts in the past that reflect some of our practice looking at various regulatory issues. And today we're going to target in, we're going to zone in on three federal updates that really impact just about anyone and everyone who deals with water in some way, shape, or form in the state of Texas. We're going to look at waters of the United States, the jurisdictional rule there. We're going to then pivot over to what everyone seems to be following in the PFAS world and what that means for drinking water and wastewater utilities. And finally, we'll close out with the lead and copper rule that has impacts primarily for drinking water utilities, but also for other entities as well and utilities. So, With that, I know Lauren has been tracking the latest, greatest, and an ever-moving target on jurisdictional waters. And so tell us a little bit about where we are right now with the jurisdictional rule for federal waters. Yes, I'd love to. So Nathan, as you remember, we've actually talked a little bit about waters of the United States before, back in season one, episode five. And I believe back then, one of us referred to it as a pendulum swinging back and forth, the rule just changing, going back and forth, back and forth. And I just feel at this point, it's just broken off and flown away. And here we are just with yet a, a different a different kind of thing to pay attention to. So in this latest chapter of the Clean Water Act, Waters of the United States jurisdictional rule, We're actually reverting to this world where a case-by-case analysis is going to be required. And so just to give y'all an update on this, EPA proposed a new rule in November 2021, and there's a comment closure date of February 7th, 2022. And for those of you that have been tracking this for a long time, Nathan, I know you have this proposed rule uses the 1980s rule of Waters of the United States definition as the foundation, and then it brings in two Supreme Court cases and kind of overlays the outcomes of those Supreme Court cases on top. And that's the Supreme Court case of Rapanos of the United States and Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. This proposed rule sounds really familiar to what we've seen before. It includes five categories. The first is that it covers traditional navigable waters and territorial seas. The second is that it covers impoundments of waters of the United States. The third is that it covers tributaries to traditional navigable waters. The fourth is that it covers wetlands that are adjacent to impoundments or tributaries. 
And then the fifth is that it includes, and this is a quote, other waters. And really, in a lot of ways, this is the status quo with dramatic carve-outs, especially compared to the 2015 Obama administration version of Waters of the United States interpretation. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're just going to keep an eye on all of this and see what happens in 2022. And so, Lauren, one of the things that I think interests a lot of people is, okay, we've seen, you mentioned this pendulum going back and forth, and Mm -hmm. we've seen so much movement here. It almost seems as though what EPA and the Corps of Engineers have done is to is to say, no, let, let's just, let's simplify, go pre-2015, just simplify waters of the U.S. without trying to add additional carve-ins or carve-outs. One thing that I think was interesting to a lot of folks over the last six, seven years on this issue is this notion of connectivity. So everyone knows your traditional, relatively permanent waters, but what about waters that have some sort of a periodic connection to other water bodies. How how is that being dealt with in this new rulemaking package? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think the first most important thing to note is that all of these kind of analyses are going to be on a case-by-case basis. So let's keep that in mind first. And then the other kind of crucial thing here is that the language and the rule, the language looks at both, quote, relatively permanent streams, And then also those waters that, and this is another quote, significantly affect such traditional waters. And this includes certain wetlands and also adjacent but separated water bodies. So, you know, Nathan, to answer your question, connectivity is not going away. It's still included here. It's just we've got these kind of two terms that we really need to focus on and also keep in mind that this is going to be a case-by-case basis moving forward. And and one thing about some of the streams throughout the Southwest and certainly here in Texas, ephemeral streams, I think there was some confusion in the last several years as to whether our ephemeral streams or even intermittent streams included as jurisdictional waters or are they not? What's their status under this rule? Yes. So ephemeral streams are going to be included. But again, I do want to emphasize we're reverting back to that case-by-case basis analysis. So I do think that's important to keep in mind here. And then, you know, also just thinking of what does all this mean for utilities going forward? We have a lot of utility listeners on our podcast. And so, you know, Nathan, do you have any thoughts on what this means for utilities? I think it has been the case for some time. If you're a discharge permit holder under a TPDS program here in Texas, your status will not be changed. I think by contrast, depending on what you're doing by way of water supply planning and more shovel-ready projects, you would expect to see more of a traditional mitigation impact from this rule than you would have under the previous one. But again, it's reverting back to what was in place in the 1980s all the way really through the mid-2010s. So, you know, there's really not a huge impact on most of the folks we work with, but this issue gets a lot of press because it's the foundation for jurisdictional waters across the country and here in Texas. I will say, as we pivot to something else that is a little bit more of an impact to clients and utilities across Texas, is PFAS. You know, this issue of these chemical substances that have extremely long half-lives and EPA's interest in regulating them. Lauren, maybe give us a little bit of an overview about 
What is the landscape right now with PFAS and PFAS regulation there at EPA? Definitely. So PFAS, also known as perfluoral alkyl substances, and I should note actually that season two, episode six, uh, we do a deeper dive into the background of kind of what PFAS are and why they're a concern. So I do encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that podcast if they haven't already. But PFAS significantly bioaccumulate in tissue. And so they've been kind of a hot topic for EPA over the past decade or so. And EPA has been making moves. In 2021, EPA published an updated strategic roadmap for how they're going to address PFAS. And this covers the years 2021 through 2024. This roadmap is quite comprehensive, includes testing, monitoring, and rulemaking. And part of this strategic roadmap actually includes publishing a national testing strategy. And so EPA did this back in fall of 2021. EPA is also in the process of issuing preliminary determinations to regulate PFAS under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And that proposed rule is expected in fall of 2022. And then EPA is expecting the final rule in fall of 2023. As I mentioned, monitoring is also an important part of the strategic roadmap. Nathan, what have you seen kind of going on with PFAS monitoring? Yeah, this is one step of a multi-step process that the regulators, both at the federal level primarily, as we're talking about, but also at some state levels, not yet in Texas, but what they're undertaking to what they describe, what EPA described as step one, research, step two, restrict, and step three, remediate. And if that gives a number of folks pause, it's for good reason, because these are potentially new contaminants that would be regulated both on a drinking water as well as a wastewater side. And these are contaminants that are not introduced by the utilities, but utilities are the entities who either treat that which is provided to them or they treat uh, drinking water and distribute it across their systems. And so these are potentially earth-shattering regulatory development. You know, by way of what we're seeing on that front end, so it talks about researching. Just before the holidays, just before the new year, at start of 2022, EPA used the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule to identify 29, 29 different PFAS chemicals that EPA will require sampling for here in the coming years. Sampling to start in 2023 with a preliminary plan in 2022. And so the, the thinking is, and this is a really a preliminary step that leads to potentially the designation of MCLs for these PFAS contaminants, but there's going to be at least sampling to see, okay, how regularly occurring are we finding these particular PFAS substances in our drinking water? What does it look like by way of their prevalence? And that will then drive, as Lauren mentioned, some of the other steps that are in the roadmap. And as I broadly described it as moving from research to restrict to remediate, you know, this is, what's interesting is when you look at the restriction side of things from EPAs, from their plan, what they say is, and I'll just quote this, they say, we want to, quote, place responsibility for limiting exposures and addressing hazards of PFAS on manufacturers, processors, distributors, importers, industrial, and other significant users, dischargers, and treatment and disposal facilities, end quote. 
And that emphasis is pretty broad, of course. It mentions those who create it, but also those who discharge and those who, who treat. Many in the water community, both on drinking water and wastewater, would point out, well, these aren't chemicals that we've created. They're chemicals that we're dealing with and having to process. Right. And so should the onus be on the utilities when, in fact, these are produced in other settings? And so, Lauren, I'm, I'm curious, in light of that, what should our wastewater utilities be concerned about with this current plan as it exists? Certainly, yeah. So they, I mean, they definitely need to be paying attention. And I can expand on this a little bit more, but, you know, with CERCLA and possibly labeling PFAS as a hazardous substance, you know, that could be problematic for our wastewater listeners. And on the flip side, Nathan, you know, what do you think drinking water utilities should be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues is trying to get out in front of this and identifying for those who, who haven't already started down this path, what are we finding by way of our labs that are looking at emerging contaminants that are already looking at what are the methods that can be used? In fact, there are going to be certain lab methods developed for many of these PFAS substances. So having your arms around, okay, what are these particularly identified PFAS substances that EPA is asking to monitor for? And also consider, okay, well, if even available, what are treatment options that exist based on current technology, based on emerging technology? I will say as well, I mean, it's not, you know, as Lauren mentioned, you know, there's the wastewater concern under CERCLA, which is a federal statute that deals with hazardous waste. And if certain PFAS substances are identified and characterized as hazardous wastes, as many expect they will be, mm-hmm. liability attaches to where the waste is found irrespective of responsibility. So that has a substantial impact. I think this is a critical moment for those with pretreatment programs to engage with your, to the extent you're not already doing this, engage with your industrial users within your system. Make sure they're following their control plans, their pretreatment permits in order to avoid having contributors directly into your system as the potential sources of these. And so again, it's really all encompassing by way of how this plays across utilities and across different programs within each utilities. Mm -hmm. And and I just want to add one more thing on CERCLA and then we can move on. But EPA is expecting a proposed rule in spring of 2022. So we're definitely going to be keeping an eye out for that. And then they're expecting to have the final rule sometime in summer of 2023. Also somewhat related to CERCLA, a little bit of a different vein is EPA is planning to finalize the risk assessment for PFOA and PFOS and biosolids, and that is going to serve as the basis for determining whether we need additional regulations for these types of substances in biosolids and whether that's appropriate. And we can expect to hopefully see something from EPA on that in winter of 2024. So, Lauren, when these proposals come out, again, and, and we're summarizing these in conjunction with the podcast. But when these proposals come out, what are some ways that folks can get involved in order to state their opinions? Yes. So EPA often holds different stakeholder discussions. There are certain situations where groups can apply to be considered stakeholders for roundtables. There's also the more formal kind of administrative comment process where EPA puts out a proposed rule and solicits comments on a proposed rule. And this is a great, great opportunity 
for entities that are going to be impacted by these proposed rules to weigh in and really get their voices heard. So I encourage, you know, our listeners to just keep an eye out for these opportunities to weigh in. So on another drinking water front here, regulatory front, many have been following the lead and copper rule really for several years since the last administration pushed an effort to reduce quantities of lead and copper in our nation's drinking water infrastructure. Again, coming out of really the Flint crisis and the challenges associated with it, but also looking more broadly across the country and looking at what the 1991 lead and copper rule, how it might be adjusted. So what's happened since the last time we've talked on this? One of the very few areas of commonality on regulatory fronts, maybe other fronts between the current and past administration is the lead and copper rule target at looking to replace infrastructure in the drinking water side that is composed of lead or or copper materials. So the Biden administration had put a freeze on the lead and copper rule that the Trump administration had promulgated in order just to give some time to see, hey, is this something that we still want to proceed with or are there tweaks, changes, major revisions that Mm -hmm. they wanted to undertake? So in December of 2021, EPA decided to move forward and go final with the lead and copper rule revisions, which target, some would say, appropriately aggressive, some would say not aggressive enough, some would say exceedingly (laughs) aggressive uh, targets to look at the replacement sampling, public education, and outreach on lead and copper. So just by way of a background, what does this new rule do? Well, it requires every public water system to put together an inventory of all of their lead and copper pipe across their system, including on lead on publicly owned service lines provided to residential properties within three years. In fact, the deadline is October of 2024 mm-hmm. to come up with that inventory. There's then a replacement rate of 3% of your system per year that is undertaken there. And that means across the system, you could have between 30 and 33 years to replace the lead and copper pipe that falls under the action level of the rule. And so that actually was one of the issues that drove some pushback. Is it fast enough? Is it too fast? We're talking about significant public dollars at stake to really dig up pipe that's been in the ground for decades in most cases. But 3% a year, there's no test out requirement. This is one of the changes from the 1991 rule. Mm -hmm. You can't just do a single test, say, yep, we don't detect any evidence of lead and copper, so therefore no need to replace No, there's an absolute replacement requirement in this new rule. There are other details that look at school and child care monitoring and sampling once every five years in public outreach. But that's the nutshell, is looking at a proactive way across drinking water systems in order to try and reduce the possibility of lead and copper in drinking water supply. So, Nathan, what would you recommend for utility folks? What are some proactive actions that they can be taking now? Yeah, so a lot of the drinking water utilities have already undertaken some effort at an inventory. But what we would say is try and identify just from a desktop analysis what it is where you know the the state of the pipe, what it is. Because part of the challenge is under the rule, if you don't know, you have to assume Mm -hmm. it's lead or copper. So looking at ways to map your system and coordinate really with existing CIP planning, with existing projects across your distribution system. What are the areas and neighborhoods that you can test in order to develop this inventory on the front end? Also, you know, just given supply chain shortages, 
look at ways to see what inventory will look like because once again, you reach that period after inventory, there's a requirement for the replacement effort. And so making sure to be engaged in that way would be critical just again, given some of the challenges of the last year. Mm-hmm. So on some of the implementation, a lot of these requirements are, are brand new. Do we expect anything from EPA to lend any additional insight as to how folks can comply? Yes. So I think we can expect to see some guidance on a few different parts of this rule, such as lead service line inventories. We may also see different templates that can be used for testing and for submittals to the agencies, and then possibly also guidance on best practices. However, we've not been given any specific time frame. So we're, we're definitely going to be tracking that and keeping an eye out for it. Yeah, the one closing thought on lead and copper that I think is important to note is even though the administration decided to go forward with the rule that was put in place or the rule that was proposed under the last administration, the EPA said they are going to target an additional round of rulemaking known as the lead and copper rule improvements that would go into effect by October of 2024, which is the compliance deadline under the existing rules. Some of this will look at environmental justice areas, look to prioritize funding and projects and maybe even early year replacement in economically disadvantaged areas. There is also an interest in looking to better coordinate all lead service lines, not just owned by the utility, but also the segment of a service line owned by the private property owner, better coordinate that so you'd see the full length replaced. There's a lot going on in these. And what's interesting is when you look at all three of these rules, there are various stages. One is done, the lead and copper rule. Another is midway through as we look at the waters of the U.S. effort. And then on PFAS, we see coming down the pipeline quite a number of rulemakings in place. And so with all these, you know, whether it's with uh, industry groups or as individual entities with your teams, it's critical to be involved to both understand what is being required, but also to shape policy in a way that makes sense for utilities that are navigating this web of regulations. Lauren, any final thoughts on these federal initiatives or ways folks can uh, remain engaged? No, no. I think just keep tuning in when you can. I suspect this is not our last podcast on any of these topics. <laughs> keep tuning in. Pay attention to the rulemaking coming out and you know, reach out if you have questions. Lauren and Nathan, thank you so much for joining us here today and for telling us all about what's going on within the federal water issues landscape. I hope to talk with both of you again soon and can't wait to hear what you have to share next time. If you would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit lglawfirm.com. You can also find us at Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views, nor are they endorsed by Lloyd Gosling Law Firm. None of this content should be considered legal advice, as one should always consult a lawyer. This podcast is not intended for commercial purposes and is made available at no cost. Music for the podcast is from album Jazz You and is titled By the Coast 2004-2007 by Anthony Rajakov. License under the Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License is available on Free Music Archive. To learn more, visit by clicking the link in today's summary.